Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another uh, edition of Exploring Mental Illness, Everything You Wanted to Know But Were Afraid to Ask. Carrie Ballou is here, as always. Hello, Carrie. Hello, Mr. Derek. How are you today? Hanging in there. We're taping uh, this episode a couple days before the beginning of December. We're going to be talking about uh, seasonal affective disorder, which I struggle with (laughs) a lot, uh, especially this year. So, um, this is going to be a, a very, I think, an enlightening episode. I hope so. I think that there are a lot of our listeners out there probably have heard of SAD or SAD or seasonal affective disorder before, but maybe they just didn't quite understand all that was involved and what it feels like. And maybe there are folks out there who've never heard of it. And as we talk about it, maybe like, oh, that happens to me. So I and think, I don't think you have to have mental illness. I think everybody suffers from it sometimes. I mean, you don't have to have depression or anxiety or anything like that. I think normal people struggle with it because there is such at this time of year, there's a pressure on you to be happy, to sing songs, to go to Christmas parties, to buy gifts. The pressure can be extremely overwhelming, especially for people who have clinical depression like myself, who want to participate, but don't know how. So they isolate themselves. And that's the trouble that you know I'm having this year. A lot of personal stuff has happened within the, just the past week. And it's just, uh, you know, I can't listen to a Christmas song or see a Christmas commercial without starting to cry because I'm just, um, I'm really lost this year on, on what to do. So, um, so I don't think this just affects people with depression. I think it affects everybody. And I don't think they realize that it does. They're just like, oh, I'm tired. They could be suffering from this. I know people suffer from it because the sun goes down early and they're not getting the sunlight. And we know that the sunlight does nutrients, but now they have these gimmicks where it's artificial sunlight that you, you put on your face or you look at every day. That never affected me. I, didn't, I, I don't mind the sun going down. It's just without family, you know, it's tough to, it's tough to do things. It can be a challenge. I think we, that there's a lot of different coping skills that are out there. And, um, and again, we're going to get really deep into this topic with Jill McCormick, our guest today. Hello, Jill. Hello, Jill. Hi. I would say the, my viewpoint at the beginning of this conversation in this podcast is that seasonal affective disorder, yes, can influence people and affect people that don't have necessarily chronic mental health issues. I don't think it affects everybody because you can't help but think about that super extremely bubbly person who's like always got the Christmas spirit. And so you question whether or not they're impacted. But again, we're going to find out some more today about SAD. Should we refer to it as SAD throughout the podcast or seasonal affective disorder? We'll we'll leave that up to Jill. I think we should totally leave it up to Jill. Yeah. I'm probably most likely going to be referring it to seasonal affective disorder only because I think sometimes when you get into the acronyms, some people will hear it as something else that it's not. Uh, so I, I will refer to it as seasonal affective disorder, but certainly if you guys want to refer to it as sad, I think the viewers will know what you mean. True. So Jill, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, so I am currently the clinical director at Fuller Hospital. Uh, I just recently started that position a few months ago. I've been with Fuller Hospital in different capacities for about a little over two years. I've been in mental health for about 15 years now, started working with children with disabilities in New York, and have kind of made my way around the country, Rhode Island, Colorado, um, back to Rhode Island, now Massachusetts, working with adults, uh, primarily with adults with uh, mental illnesses. I also have a private practice on the side where I see people individually. I just really 
love this field and just have been working in it for a while. So I kind of see a mix of everything. And having known you for what, about a year and a half, almost two oh, years two now? two years now. About two years now. You're very good at your job as well. And just for folks to know, um, Jill is a licensed uh, social worker, correct? L-I-C-S-W. L-I-C-S-W. We have talked before with our listeners in trying to kind of differentiate between an LMHC or a licensed mental health counselor and a licensed social worker. So, um, but yes, I work with Jill very closely and she is a fantastic addition to the team and she's been pivotal in a lot of our clinical advancements and clinical needs and treatment that we offer our patients so very excited to have you here you're one of the first people I thought about when this topic came up one because I know how knowledgeable you are in general whenever I have a question you have some answer that you just when you answer my question so relatable so relatable so I I felt like you'd be a really good addition but also because of the private practice piece I think that there's something to be said about working in an inpatient setting such as Fuller it's very different than working in private practice and so you have experience in both what got you into the field of mental health um, so initially, I was in undergrad school for criminal justice and communications, and a roommate of mine met someone at a nail salon with a child who was autistic who needed a respite worker and said, oh, I think you would really like this job. So I took it, and I guess from there, I really, really enjoyed working with the kids. Um, once I graduated, I had to move and leave that job, but it just naturally brought me into working in a group home. And then from there, I had another coworker who had said, oh, I really think you would love working with the adults that I work with at the Providence Center who have uh, serious mental health issues. And I was like, all right, I'll give it a try. And then I never left. I have then just worked in um, community mental health for a while. Then I was in ERs for a while. And now I'm an inpatient and really miss the one-on-one, which is what brought me back to private practice. So I do that on the side. Uh, but it was kind of I accidentally tripped into it and then from there just loved it so much that I just stayed in it and I really can't see my life without it at this point. That's great. Good story. Good background on that. I love it when people are like, I happened upon my career. You followed your passion. Yeah. I mean, I always say that I'm, I feel extremely thankful and lucky that it just happens that the thing that I really enjoy doing also can translate into a career because I don't think that everyone in this world are that fortunate. So no, I that feel... Doesn't, that doesn't happen that often, right. especially when it's a suggestion. Hey, right. you might like this. Okay, I'll try it. Oh my God, this is the greatest... I mean, they say, you know, if you love your job, you never work a day in your life. And you're making a difference. And that also helps. I can say I definitely work <laughs> many days in my life, but I do love it. And I, I wake up every day really looking forward to what I'm doing. And I do not take that for granted. Like I just feel so fortunate that I'm able to do this and that the people that I meet, both patients, clients, humans in general, my coworkers, I I love it every day, truthfully. But you can see the fruits of your labor, obviously. I mean, that helps any job when you know that you're helping somebody and they're making you know adjustments and then they come back and they're just like, hey, thank you so much. You know, I, I can now make it through the holidays or the summer or the winter, thanks to your help. I know jobs that I've worked, if I, if I can't see what I've done to make a difference, it doesn't seem like I've done anything. But when you can look, even if it's as simple as, you know, mopping a floor, 
and you can see the clean next to the dirty and say, hey, you know what, I, I did a good job. You know, I think that's important in, in any job where you can see a difference. And I think that's what keeps everybody motivated. Yeah, I mean, even just when Carrie said, I, th- I thought of you immediately, even that kind of thing is what keeps me going because it's really those connections that you have to people regardless of what type of perceived progress they're making. Just knowing that someone thinks of you and that you have had some type of impact in even what could be perceived as a minor way, you have no idea what the perception is on the other end. Well, we are happy to have you at Fuller and here today to talk about seasonal affective disorder. Yeah, let's get to the meat and bones of it. So I think that you know, you had mentioned it's not just people who have the clinical depression and all of that. And, you know, you can really look at a lot of the clinical stuff in a few different ways. If you're actually going to diagnose a true case of seasonal affective disorder, it really does stem with an initial diagnosis of a major depressive disorder. That's not to say that a huge amount of the public does not have symptoms of seasonal affective disorder in various ways and can experience it, but to carry an actual true diagnosis, you would have to meet the criteria of the DSM-5 to be diagnosed with a major depressive disorder, and then the seasonal affective disorder is a specification on top of that. In order to diagnose a major depressive disorder, you have to meet the criteria, which is experiencing five or more symptoms of the following list for at least two-week period, Um, being depressed most of the day, nearly every day, a marked diminished interest or pleasure in almost all activities, significant weight loss when you're not dieting or a weight gain um, and coming with that would be a decrease in appetite slowing downs of thoughts and a reduction of physical movement observable by others not just a subjective feeling of your own uh, feeling of fatigue or loss feelings of worthlessness or excessive and inappropriate guilt diminished ability to think or concentrate indecisiveness nearly every day or reoccurring thoughts of death suicidal ideation with a spe- without a specific plan or a suicide attempt or a specific plan so if you have five or more of those things for at least a two-week period then you could potentially be diagnosed with uh, a major depressive disorder then where we get into the seasonal depress uh, the seasonal affective disorder is when it's a marked shift from typically we see it from the late fall winter through the beginning of the spring there are some outliers that where some people actually do have seasonal affective disorder um, in the spring and summertime it's not nearly as common but they do have that so that's that's really what clinically it looks like however like i said there are a lot of us who for various reasons do experience some aspect of this even if it's not a clinical diagnosis we just have these feelings whether it's because of the lack of light or we have a really difficult time around the holidays or this year you had mentioned um that it it seems particularly rough for you this year and i've actually heard from several people that their perspective and again there's no uh research around this but that this year has been hard for a lot of people because since the fall has ended we've had a lot of rain and because of the rain and which causes even less sunlight i've heard that there's been a lot more of this going around this year for what it's worth less of that holiday spirit out there i can absolutely see that it's interesting 
though, hearing that the difference between a clinical diagnosis and something more formalized and the symptoms of. I would have to agree with you on there's so many more factors that could influence somebody who may experience the symptoms around this time of year but don't have a clinical diagnosis. Even something as basic as associating memories around the holiday season. You could have had um, no positive memories around the holidays due to your family structure or due to your income or your environment. Socioeconomic factors where you're not tying it back to that. But at the same time, and we were talking about this off air, I feel like we have the other extreme of people where we've got folks that are like, like as soon as they start hearing Christmas music and smell a cookie, they are in the spirit. It is positivity and good energy and this jolliness and excitement and motivation to decorate. I used to be one of those people. You used to be. Okay, so so when did you find the shift occur? Probably when my dad passed away. I've had good Christmases, yeah. bad Christmases, and absolutely unthinkably awful Christmases. So then that's kind of maybe a combination because you do had mentioned you have the diagnosis of the major depressive disorder. No, it was funny because when she was running down the thing, I was, I was writing them all down. I'm just like, yep, 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 yep. The only time I feel productive is when I'm at work because I know I'm, I'm doing something. But like I said, I can't hear Christmas music and, and I love the holidays. I tend to live with memories of the past and it's just not going to be like that anymore. It's too late to start this year, but I think next year, you know, I have to start new traditions when it comes to Christmas. And yeah, economically, it, 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 it's tough. Emotionally, that's where I'm a wreck right now, in all honesty. I'm just emotionally, you know, I'm to the point now where I DVR my shows and I don't watch them until I DVR them so that I can fast forward through the Christmas commercials. And I used to love that. I was the guy out. If I wasn't working, I was I was out there on Black Friday shopping with my friends. But as my friends grew up and got families, I was the odd guy out. And that's tough. And this is going to be a very, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm by no means looking for pity and making this all about myself. But this is going to be a Christmas that I'm going to spend alone this year. And that's tough. Getting up on Christmas morning by yourself and just having it be another day sucks. I, you know. Like I said, next year it's time to start new traditions. 90% of this year has been great. The last, starting November 1st till the end of the year is not good. And in previous podcasts, you had mentioned that in addition to obviously like the cyclical nature of seasonal affective disorder, so the fact that this could just be something that is tied in with your depression diagnosis, but you've also gone through some different medication adjustments and changes that potentially do you think could that have maybe triggered this year? No, I've been like this, you know, I always try to make the best out of it. This year, I don't see anything that I can do to make it good. Uh, I struggle with putting up a, a Christmas tree. I mean, I I mean, my living room was like Griswoldville. You know, I would put up a thousand lights in my in my apartment and put up a tree and decorate it and stuff. I have no desire to do it this year. It seems like a job. And if it seems like a job to put up a Christmas tree, that's not spirit. That's not Christmas spirit if it's going to feel like a job to, to, to do this. And I think you make a good point about making new traditions and making it something that's special for you whatever that looks like. You know, I can say that in my family, we celebrated Christmas. I have great Christmas memories. Um, However, then once I met 
the person who is now my now husband, he has very bad memories associated with Christmas. And so coming into our family, he was, no, don't buy me any gifts. I don't celebrate this. I don't want any part of it. Um, My mom, who is very into celebrations of any kind, really, just being around friends and family, she said, you know what? You're part of our family. We're not celebrating Christmas anymore. We are now celebrating Friends and Family Appreciation Day, and it doesn't have to be on Christmas Day. It can be any time around that, and we won't give regular gifts. We will only do things that are more like gift certificates to go out to dinner together or a gift certificate to go kayaking together, things like that, because that's what fit our now sort of blended family. But making new traditions as you get older that fit with you, and sometimes that may be similar to what you did as a child. Sometimes it may look completely different. Sometimes it may mean making traditions that don't rely on other people, things that you can get up and do on your own because you may not always have the built-in family system or the friends that there for support. And so what traditions can you make around the holidays to make you feel um, like you want to get up and do something or feel like you have something to do that is meaningful? Well, I mean, this Thanksgiving, you know, I went to the soup kitchen, 22nd consecutive year. I go to the soup kitchen uh, in Pawtucket and uh, help out those people. And I do it on Christmas, too. I've always done it on Christmas, you know, before everybody was even up. You know, I started that about 20 years ago after my dad had passed away. Get there at 5 o'clock, help set up. And then by the time everybody's waking up, you know, you head back home. I think that's great. I th- I know actually several people who work at Fuller who do similar things with their kids is they either on Thanksgiving, on Christmas Day, on Christmas Eve, that instead of doing something at home, they bring their entire family, their children, uh, to different soup kitchens, to different charities where they can go and help serve the community around them. Even beforehand, we find that, you know, in the beginning of the of the season itself, that overall, I think as a hospital, we all of a sudden there's this, this, this shift. And so maybe something that you ask for in November or closer for Thanksgiving for a family in need becomes very easy and plentiful. And people want to contribute and they want to help others because they feel they are thankful and they want to spread that um, that feeling. It sounds like to me, my favorite word is, is, is my favorite set of words is coping skills, by the way. I use I probably talk about coping skills every single podcast. I'm you a huge to. fan. Huge because fan. Because every topic that we cover, there are coping skills there for are, everything. Absolutely. And so I like the fact that's a really good coping skill. As I'm listening to you, I'm like, that's such a good idea, coming up with your own traditions instead of sitting there ruminating on Christmas's past. No, they're still ruminating. Maybe the coping skill helps to... I don't want to say ruminating. It's just, I I like to, I have fond memories of Christmases growing up. And then I still have fond memories of Christmases as an adult. But the past five years, something personal has happened. And I know I share a lot of stuff on here. This is something that I can talk to you off air about. But something personal happened in my life. With all due respect, out of that person, I, I can't speak about it. And it changed the whole dynamic. It came out of nowhere, and it basically destroyed the holidays. It's almost like a, you got to do a MacGyver. You got to do some patchwork, and you got to do a workaround. So that's what I mean about you know new traditions. Yeah, I mean, I think that when we're talking about the coping skills and the new traditions, I think it's important to remember and to remind people that 
even when we're talking about coping skills or dealing with whatever has happened in our lives, it's not to forget. We are not going to forget what happened. We're not going to, those memories are going to be there. It's sort of thinking about how, how can we change our lives so that we can walk with the things that happened with us because they're going to be there. You're going to have reminders. You're still going to think about it You're because it's still there. Those memories are still going to be there. So how do we survive and thrive and live knowing that and knowing that the memories will still be there? They're just going to be with us in a different capacity, hopefully. Well, that's the thing. It's bridging the gap between the, the old memories, which were great, and trying to create new memories. And the past five years, I've just been having trouble creating you know new memories so um it's what i go through every every single year some years like i said have been awesome in my adulthood um not this year you know i'm very happy when i'm working because i'm with a lot of people and it's very distracting um but i drive down the street and i see the you know i see the the christmas displays and i'm just like i wish i could be in the christmas spirit i don't know how and i don't know I don't want to interrupt and I don't want to upset other people, you know, even if they invite me over, you know, I, I don't want to be there because I don't want to bring them down and I'm not going to put on a, you know, a false front. I told myself that no more. You know, I'm not going to put on a happy face. If people who know me understand me, they will understand why I would stay away and they are starting to get that. But then they're just like, you know, they're pushing also, well, you know, you might still want to just come over. We don't care how you feel. Just come over. So it's, it's a tightrope. So. Listening to this and listening to you, Derek, I, I, I wonder, and, and Joel, maybe you could kind of give us some guidance. So what Derek is experiencing, would that be under the category of the under the major depressive disorder? Or is that what, given the, the time frame and also um, the symptoms, would that be classified under seasonal affective disorder? What, what classifies seasonal affective disorder from major depressive disorder. I do want to say in 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 the case of Derek, I would not diagnose you. <laughs> you know, that's not my place. Um and I think that that's important to know that. But I've that. been diagnosed well, with right. clinical I have been diagnosed with clinical depression. Right, but I just mean in terms of this radio show, like when Carrie's saying would it be this or would it be this? I think it's important to say like I just met you. So I can say from what I know of you and the things that I have heard um I, I don't think that it would technically be classified as seasonal affective disorder specifically, even though you may also have that. I don't know personally. I can um, tell you, if, if, excuse me for one second, I can tell you it starts on October 31st. It starts on Halloween because that's when the Christmas commercials come out. Okay. And it lasts all through November. And the day after Christmas is over, I'm fine until New Year's Eve when I'm by myself, ringing in the new year with nobody. And then after you know New Year's Day, it's all gone. Everything's done. Everything's over with. It's behind me, and I and and that's it. And and so for that reason, I would not call it seasonal affective disorder, only because it seems that it's related to specific events and specific things that have happened to you. Also, the commercials and the things like that. It happens to be that all of those triggers for you, all of those events, did happen at this time so it can be kind of looked at in that way but i would say that it's more related to the to these external events that have happened to you and that's not to invalidate anything that you may have been feeling before that and certainly you know i would say when you're having 
issues with depression or or these triggering events, the winter time can add to that too. You know, not ha- not having. I, lo- I love the winter. I absolutely love the winter. I mean, you know, when it snows, I love going out taking you know winter walks. It's very memory evoking. I love it. I love the crisp air. Like I said, it's just when this time of year comes around, when you're alone, you feel worthless. Like I said, you know, you think about death a lot. You know, my my favorite movie is A Wonderful Life. That kind of keeps me going sometimes because I've been called the George Bailey of of Pawtucket, you know, without the building and loan. And like I said, after New Year's Day, everything's everything's fine. Right. And, And that's why I would say it's more related to these different events. You know, typically when we see something like seasonal affective disorder, if it was during the winter time months or the fall and winter, it would last far beyond you know, the new year, because that's still the winter months. And it sounds like the things you're talking about are triggered by the commercials, the songs, the songs, yeah. all of that. Because I used to enjoy them so much. Right. I don't know how to enjoy them anymore. Then what does seasonal affective disorder typically look like for somebody who has a formal, would be formally diagnosed? So the criteria that I had listed before, it would be those things, except it would be for the winter, if it was in the winter months, it would be during for the fall, like late fall, and through the winter, and it wouldn't necessarily be triggered by an event like Christmas or Thanksgiving. You know, I think one of the things we talk about with de- with depression in general is people will say, oh, I'm feeling really depressed, whether it's a clinical diagnosis or not. And the first question that sort of the normal person says to them is, well, what's wrong? Did something happen? And a lot of times the answer is no, nothing happened. There was no event, nothing happened. I just feel depressed and that's okay. And that can be very normal. And so when we're talking about the seasonal affective disorder, it doesn't have to be an event. It's you just feel, you just have this depression and it's not necessarily, in terms of seasonal affective disorder, it is the event would be, the season or trigger right be the the onset of the season right um but it wouldn't be a trigger like a holiday or christmas things like that it would just be the season is what is kind of evoking that so to speak so what i'm hearing and our listeners could probably um maybe also relating to this or can, can understand this is what comes first the chicken or the egg. So where the chicken and the egg theory is, is with seasonal affective disorder, people experience the depression first and then that could trigger unhappy or unfulfilling experiences at the holidays. So maybe they're depressed and then that could be triggering associating wreaths and Christmas lights and Christmas songs with like happiness and that could be a, a turnoff because they're experiencing the actual physiological depression or... But I think it's more, I think what she's getting at is more that Oh, you know what? September's here. It's starting to get cold. The the days are going to get shorter. Oh, geez. Now we've got daylight savings time. Now it's going to be dark at four o'clock. That's what I think she's trying right. to get at for the trigger for seasonal affective mm-hmm. dis- dis- disorder. And then, you know, once the days start getting longer, then people start to snap out of it a little bit. And they know that, you know what? It's only a couple more months. When you get that first cold day, and we had the early snow, I think that's what's gonna trigger your seasonal affective disorder right there. So I think when you're talking about the chicken or the egg, what's the first trigger of SAD and what can exacerbate it? Yeah, and and I think that's kind of just as like a thing, FYI, is that one of the things that can be really hard about 
explaining this stuff is the overwhelming majority of humans, it's not just one thing. It's not just, I have seasonal affective disorder. It's, I have seasonal affective disorder and I might have some bad memories of the holidays. Those are two separate things and it makes it harder. And so people have all these overlapping things. And so really to look at it, you have to break it out. Really dissect it. Right, because if you're treating something like that, you would first have to treat the seasonal affective disorder, which could be like a medication or a light box or something like that, which we can talk about like on air. But then you would then additionally have to look at these events that have happened because those aren't going to be treated by medication. Those are going to be treated by some type of therapy, you know, and whereas a seasonal affective disorder, you can have some relief from therapy, but it's not going to treat the chemical piece that's actually happening happening in your body or in your brain. When you're clinically depressed, that's year round. Right. And, and seasonal affective disorder is just that, seasonal. Right. And some people will take a medication seasonally. Right. Because they've figured out that they don't necessarily need it year round. What I'm hearing is seasonal affective disorder is one thing. And obviously, the clinical depression is, is is another thing. Now, can those two be combined, or are, are they strictly two separate? No, they absolutely can be combined. So a person can have a diagnosis of major depressive disorder, and it can look one way for part of the year. And then it can get worse once the seasonal affective disorder kind of kicks in, you know, whether it's in the winter or the summer, depending on what that looks like for you, they can definitely exist together. It just may get worse. The symptoms may get worse. You may have a diff- more difficult time coming out of it and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or, you know, whatever they say, walking, getting out of the house. It can become more difficult during the winter months. And again, that's where a lot of our holidays are concentrated. So, when everything is layered on top of each other, this time of year can just be very, very hard. Well, I'm glad to know that I don't I don't think I have seasonal affective disorder because I don't mind it getting dark at four o'clock and lighting a nice cozy light in my in my apartment and going out, you know, when it's dark. I don't like I said, I don't I don't have that problem. You know, the heavy focus is on the light, but for some people it's also a change in chemicals in the brain happens around that time. And so It's a lot of things, but to be honest, in speaking with you, it doesn't sound like that's what you have because it sounds like what you're talking about is very closely related with specific events, specific memories. Yeah, it's more emotional and and depressive. Like my therapist said, do you need a light box? It's like, no, I don't have a problem. You know, I'm, I'm a night owl. I like going out at night. I take walks at two in the morning when I can't sleep and I just walk where I where I live. And it's great. You know, I love it. I think you're spot on. You need traditions. You need new traditions and new memories to make and new ways to to celebrate and acknowledge the holiday season um, to move forward and to walk with those memories, but not let those memories hold you back, essentially. Um, What are some of the different treatments for somebody who may be experiencing seasonal affective disorder? Um, So we had talked a little bit about it. There's definitely medications that can help, which I'm not a doctor, so I don't really want to get into kind of the specifics of that. If you think you're being affected, I would definitely go speak to a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner who would be able to prescribe you something or talk, talk to you about what the options are. But for sure, there are 
medications that are helpful. Uh, Psychotherapy or any type of talk therapy can be helpful. I will say that, again, talk therapy, while I will say that I'm an advocate because I'm a professional in that field, but I think that it is beneficial to a degree, right? If your chemicals are off, if there's something that really needs to be treated pharmaceutically, that can happen and talk therapy can help teach you coping skills. It can help just feel like you are connected to someone who you can express yourself to, who you can talk through different things and maybe figure out different traditions, different things you can do, where you can find support, stuff like that. There's also, again, you had mentioned the light boxes. I've seen and heard of a lot of people who have benefited from that. I know I have some colleagues out in Colorado who kept light boxes in their offices actually all year round because it, they found it very, very helpful. And just um, just interrupt, there might be people out there who don't know what light boxes are. Can you just okay. explain um, what they are and, and, and what their main function is? Sure. A light box or different types of lighting things that they have out there is it's a very uh, specific type of light that produces, it's got like a certain shade to it and it's supposed to help mimic what you would get from the sun and what your body produces when you have more sunlight. So the idea is that it offsets the lack of sunlight that you're getting uh, from the natural sunlight as that's decreasing. So some people will put that on at night while they're sleeping. Some people put it in their office. So if they have an office with no windows and they're not getting any light, they might put it in their office and turn it on once an hour for 10 minutes. There's various ways that you can use them, but it's, it's quite literally a box of light that you just put on your face and it mimics uh, sunlight. So because of the wonderful advancements in technology, I totally just Googled because I wanted to kind of dig a little deeper onto like what kind of light, what kind of shade. So it says, and I'm just referencing a pretty reputable um, site. It says generally a light box should provide an exposure to 10,000 lux of light and emit as little UV light as possible. Yeah, you don't want to get sunburned using a light box. I mean, some people may look at it as two for one and get a tan yeah, while they are also improving their mood. I mean, I'll be honest. I have friends who during the winter, they're not people who go tanning in the summer, but in the winter with the lack of light, I don't know anything clinical about this, but they'll go tanning once or twice a week for five minutes because they feel like that is helpful for them. I also heard that too. And I, when I was getting ready for this podcast, I was looking up- some You got stuff. ready? Minimally. <laughs> She's way ahead of us. Um, But I had read this statistic that I thought was really interesting about seasonal affective disorder in that it was 1% of people who live in Florida experience seasonal affective disorder, where 9% of people who live in New England or Alaska have seasonal affective disorder. They're relating it to how far you are away from the equator. And so I thought geographically that was pretty interesting. It's very fascinating. Yeah. So you're, what you're saying is, is that light box sales are going to be better in New England and Alaska. And after this podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're welcome, retailers. In addition to light boxes, obviously, was something we talked about, more of a, of a holistic approach, medications, psychotherapy, anything else. You know, again, I'm not sure where the studies are on this, but some people find like the yoga and that type of stuff, very helpful. I would say, if I was gonna talk about it from my personal experience, 
it helps stretch out the body. It helps make you feel more connected to your mind. It can help you feel more relaxed. It's really what you benefit from, you know, just like we talked about making new traditions and things like that. It's really all about the individual person and what's going on with them, particularly because, again, like we had talked about all of these different layers of issues that may be going on with people. I always say if you can throw five different things at something, something's going to stick. So what is it that's going to be helpful for you? What's going to be beneficial for you? And if you try one thing and it's not particularly helpful, that's okay because there might be something else that will be helpful. So what what can you do? What can you try? What have people told you has helped them? Why not at least give it a try and see how it works for you? But the bottom line is, if you're not feeling right, you got to get checked out first. Absolutely. Talk to somebody. Talk to somebody who can at least help guide you in the right direction. I think you also uh, bring up a really good point about the forensics that are involved with understanding how to best approach and treat whatever you are experiencing, whether it's a formal diagnosis or not. I really liked that kind of nature versus nurture approach, you know, and the layers that can be involved with someone's experience. Um, So just again, kind of using you as an example, Derek, if you had said to us that like clockwork, you noticed a shift in your mood once the fall began. And even though it seemed worse around those triggering days and holidays, you still felt essentially a certain level of, we'll say like an underlying depression until the spring that that could be identified as, um, you know, something more like that combination of. I love the four seasons. Like I said, I mean, I, I love, I'm a cold weather guy. The time changes don't affect me getting Docker at night doesn't affect me. It's just I know that Halloween night, Christmas is off and running. And that's when I start getting depressed, and that's when my battle starts. And I I think one of the things important to point out, as you had mentioned earlier, this year it's too late to get started. But next year, being prepared is so important because we all, to some degree, run on patterns, you know? And so being, if you know that something is coming, whether it's events and holidays that are triggering to you or you're, or you do have a clinical diagnosis of seasonal affective disorder, you know, it's coming. And so what can you do to really get prepared instead of waiting till it kicks in? If you know that it's going to be kicking in, why don't you start acting on it a few months before? So you're already in good routines, already in having better patterns going into it because then once you wait for it to kick in and it happens it can be way harder to kind of get yourself going because you've already gotten to that place Um, and if you start those habits or those patterns beforehand it can feel easier to continue them during the season when halloween hits i'm just like here we go the battle starts i try to make plans plans fall through I, i mean i've tried Honestly, I I swear to God, I've tried. What I've learned lately is that you have acquaintances and you have friends. And when I was in crisis a a couple of nights ago, I went to friends who said they were going to be there and they weren't. And that hurts. That changes everything. So So you get trust issues. You don't know who you can go to. I mean, I know there are people, you know, I can go to who will definitely be there. But I don't want to sound like a broken record. And they say you're not. It's just things change on, a, on an instant. And when I make plans 
and they get broken up, then I'm just like, they don't want to be around me. You know, I'm, I'm worthless. You know, I'll just I'll just go up by myself. Well, that ties more into the, the depressive disorder piece of it. I think that's a pretty common cognition to have of the beating yourself up. Absolutely. But it's funny because, you know, when I had the good Christmases, the day after was depressing. It's almost like a wedding. You look forward to this one day a year. And then after that day of the year is over, it's like, oh, I got to wait, you know, another year for that. You know, New Year's Eve is the same way. You know, who, who wants to ring a New Year's Eve by themselves? You some, know? Well, and I, I think a lot of it's based on personality too, right? I mean, some people, I know people that would prefer to be completely alone on holidays. And they are, they are happier being alone than well, they are. Well, maybe because I've been alone so long. With others, you know, it just, that's, right now, that's the missing component. I'm just alone. I have friends who I can rely on, friends I thought I could rely on who I don't, who who, who I couldn't. So, but listen, this is about season affected well, disorder. So. I, I think the difference is between some people prefer to be alone and it's an act of choice when it's not an act of choice, when it feels like it's something that is absent and it's not... I, I choose to be alone for the holidays versus I'm alone and I wish that I had people around me. They're, it's two very different things because one's an active choice and one isn't all the time. And that's part of the forensics you were talking about before, the layers. So one layer could be your actual experiences around the holidays. Another layer could be your susceptibility to having a diagnosis of seasonal affective disorder that's triggered by chemical changes. Another layer on top of that could be your underlying personality. Are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? An extrovert, when not getting the kind of energy and you know getting their needs met by socializing or engaging with others. I've always been the life of the pot. He knows. I mean, when we go out to movies, man, I mean, I just, I love it. But when it comes to certain events, New Year's Eve, if somebody invites me over and it's all couples or married people and stuff like that, the last thing I want to do at midnight is see all these people kissing each other, you know, with their families and stuff like that. And I'm just like, wish I had that. So interestingly enough, as I'm, as I'm listening to you, and again, knowing you, you've been very forthcoming about your diagnosis. What I hear a lot of, I continue to kind of tie to the depressive disorder being one of the major underlying factors on the way that you're, the way that you're approaching those holidays. And what I hear from you is you bring up the, the loneliness piece. And we've talked before about your your viewpoints on, on having a family and, and where you're at in your life now. My father, who I think I mentioned on our very first podcast, my father is bipolar disorder. He is definitely more on the depressive side. Now, my dad had my mom, myself, my brother growing up my memories are actually very similar to what I'm hearing from you seeing my father. He struggled so much around the holiday season. He would often get very depressed. He would spend lots of time sleeping. It was really hard to generate like a jolliness or a happiness from him. And he had the family. So is it nature or is it nurture? Is it your environment or is it that's a, I mean, themselves. that's a valid point because, like I said, they haven't all been bad. Some years, they're great. Some years, like this year, horrible. You know, it, it's... Having a, having a diagnosis, whether it's a major depressive disorder diagnosis or having the seasonal affective disorder diagnosis on top of it, it doesn't mean that we can't have happy memories. When we can 
be feeling depressed, we can have seasonal affective disorder and have this baseline throughout the season where we are having feeling depressed. It's hard for us to get out. We're having suicidal thoughts. But that doesn't mean that given the right circumstance, we still can't find joy. Some people have difficulty finding joy, but it doesn't mean that we can't. We can still have very happy memories. We can have while some holidays might be bad, we can also have really good holidays. We can still have really good times when we go out with our friends. It may mean that you come home and it's harder and then you kind of plummet a little bit, but it doesn't mean that we can't feel that joy or that happiness at moments throughout that season. It's not all bad. And you just hit the nail on the head for me. You know, do I want to go out and have a good time? Yes. But when I go home by myself, when everybody else is going home with somebody else, it's a it's a balancing act and it's what you want to put yourself through. And that's very unique to you. That's, again, part of the dynamic that makes your mental health needs specific to you. I can't help but think about recently I found out I, I had some um, individuals in my life who were diagnosed with cancer and we were talking a little bit about cancer treatments and what a lot of folks may or may not know is that when you get chemotherapy there's a cocktail that's made specifically for you because every single type of cancer is a little bit different for everybody and I feel like symptoms of a mental illness though they can be categorized under DSM-5 category it's different for everybody. Absolutely. It's different for everybody because everybody has had different life experiences. You can be diagnosed with something which has symptoms, generalized things that if you meet these five criteria, but the way you meet that criteria looks different and the things you may respond to look different. You know, not everybody, every single human looks a little bit different, even though there is some connectedness. It's, it's still very different. So what are the services that are offered at Fuller in case people think they have this seasonal affective disorder or if they think they've got a depressive state? As we've talked about before on this podcast, there's a lot of different types of treatment out there in general, whether it be here in our little nook of Massachusetts or across the country, specifically at Fuller, in, which is an, a psychiatric community hospital, right? So we just focus on mental health needs. In particular, we have two types of avenues that people can go. It's inpatient care or outpatient care. And so if someone were to come to us in need of a diagnosis or treatment and they were in a point of crisis, and, and crisis can be defined in different ways, but there's usually a lot of specific specifications to define what somebody in crisis looks like. I don't know, Jill, if you wanna hop in on that. Um, I would say, so at Fuller Hospital, we accept walk-ins. So at any point, any any person off the street can walk in our front door and say, hey, I, I, I need some help. And somebody at that facility will come down and they will meet with you and try to help problem solve and figure out what the best avenue for you would be. When Carrie talked about crisis, I would say, Crisis is whatever it means to you, because all of our crises look a little bit different. If you feel like you're in crisis, period, because you know what that looks like for you, if you feel like you're something is going on that's so different than what you are like normally, or you're having feelings that you just don't normally have, you can walk in our front door and someone will come talk to you. If it meets that level and they feel like you may need inpatient, we can certainly help get you there. In terms of outpatient services, 
what what can happen is if you walk in our front door and you need some outpatient services, we do have right there at the hospital, we have a partial hospitalization program, uh, which runs Monday through Friday. You can have an assessment done right there. They may not give you a diagnosis right when you walk in the front door, but if you choose to get connected with our services, you'll meet with a psychiatrist, a case manager, who will help you out, give you a diagnosis, uh, talk to you about medications. If you need something prescribed, they can do that. Uh, and then you can go to the groups and meet with the case manager and all that type of stuff at the partial hospitalization program. And then after that, because it's really about two, uh, two weeks-ish that you would be part of that, is the case managers there will help connect you to outpatient folks. So a psychiatrist and a therapist, maybe a primary care physician, whatever it is that you need, we will help to connect you to that. Or if you have somebody who's already existing, which happens a lot. So we'll get folks that come in who would essentially benefit say mostly from a partial they're not necessarily a safety issue there is no need or 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 meeting or criteria they meet for an inpatient level of care so you know they come to us and a lot of times folks have therapists they have counselors they have prescribers already existing when they come to us they get consultation and a more intensive approach to their symptoms so for folks who are experiencing major depressive disorder or seasonal affective disorder it really depends on how debilitating your symptoms are will determine kind of the path of treatment. So if they are debilitating, if there is a safety issue, if you really are trying to harm yourself with a plan, or if you're trying to harm someone else with a plan, and these are just examples, then you know we, we offer that more intensive approach. Otherwise, we do have outpatient in the, in the partial, which is uh, both of them are short term. You know, both really look at a lot of what we talked about, the psychotropic aspect of treatment, as well as um, psychotherapy and um, DBT and, and CBT, which, pardon me, I always mess up the DBT. It's dialectical behavioral therapy. Dialectical behavior therapy. Okay. I got pretty close. And then cognitive, cognitive. behavior therapy. Yep. We know the dangers of depression, clinical depression. How dangerous can seasonal effectiveness disorder be? It's a type of clinical depression, so it can be as dangerous as as that. Um, it really, again, is dependent on the person. You know, I would say if you are having thoughts of suicide, thoughts of hurting yourself, thoughts of hurting somebody else, which absolutely can come along with that. But absolutely, if you're having any of those thoughts, reach out to somebody. Go if you don't have someone you feel like you can reach out to, go to an ER, walk into Fuller. It can be that severe for some people. It doesn't always get to that place, um, but some people, for sure, they they can act on it. I know that some people say, oh, you know, it's just my it's just my SAD, you know, I'll be fine. But I think blowing it off like that can do more harm than good. I agree. I think that that's really where the benefit of different types of talk therapy is, is because you need to know yourself. You're different than everybody else. So some people, it can be true. Yeah, this is just my SAD. Absolutely. You may, at baseline... Some people's normal is to have some low-level thoughts of wanting to hurt themselves, and they may never, ever act on it. But how do friends and family and other people know that? They don't know what you are or aren't going to do. You know. But I think that's the really one of the things about talk therapy and talking to someone is you get to know yourself, and you get to know, when am I reaching the level that I need to seek additional help? Because I was, was going to say, because if you're in talk therapy for SAD, 
once you start peeling back the layers of the onion, there might be an underlying reason why. Is that is that a fair assumption? It's more than just SAD at that point. It, c- it could. What you meant, what you think is SAD, could potentially be more. Absolutely, there could be. You know, like we've been talking about, everybody's life is different. There may be trauma from when you were a, a small child, and some people they have unintentionally put it out of their memory and they don't even remember it. They don't remember that anything happened. And then as you start talking or um, doing different types of therapy, some of those things come to light and then it kind of puts another layer on top of it. Not everyone is the same and not everyone's symptoms or treatment can be the same. So Jill, thank you so much for joining us today. I feel much more knowledgeable about seasonal affective disorder and I hope our listeners as well feel like they got a good idea of some of the different mental health issues that we experience around the holiday season, whether it be seasonal affective disorder or whether it be, you know, triggering events around the holidays that can just cause symptoms that are similar too. Uh, So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So for our listeners out there who are interested in getting more information about the podcast, about our um, guest today, Jill McCormick, or information about Fuller uh, Hospital and our services, um, you have some different avenues that you can reach out to. To start off with, social media, it's a fantastic thing. Um, We have a Facebook page. So if you were to put in the search uh, for Fuller Hospital, you can find Fuller Hospital online. You can also find um, our podcast. If you search Exploring Mental Illness on Facebook, you will find us there. Please like our page. For folks that wanted to um, get more information about Fuller, you can contact me directly, Carrie Ballou, um, at 508-761-8500 or 1-833-3-FULLER, F-U-L-L-E-R. Or you can visit us online at www.fullerhospital.com. Happy to help. If anybody's got any questions, they can let us know at mentalillness at wareradio.com. If they have any comments, questions that we can answer on air, we actually got one the just the other day. Um, if you want to listen to the podcast, it's on WARA 1320 AM every Monday at 6 o'clock, and that's WARA 1320 AM. Or you can listen to us at wararadio.com. Um, You can listen to the current and previous podcasts. Those are up there. Uh, You can also find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and YouTube. So we have all those platforms available if you want to catch up. I want to thank Jill for being here today. I want to thank Carrie, as as always. We always say you're not alone, and it's not a gimmick. I say this every, every ending of the show. It's not a gimmick. It's not a phrase. It's just the God honest truth. You're not alone. There's always somebody out there to help you. With the topic we discussed today, watch out for your friends, your family, your neighbors. If they're acting funny, talk to them. And if you have, you know, real, you know, if, if you're really concerned about them, and I always say this, if you're concerned about yourself, dial 911. They're not going to be upset with you because it's not, I mean, it could be life-threatening in the long run, but that's what they're there for. Um, if you can't reach anybody, call nine one one, and you go from there. This is a you know these are long processes, and you, you you have to put in the work. But you know what? Ultimately, you can live a, a full life, and you have to keep that expectation alive, or else you've already you've already lost. So you have to know that. And I'm living proof. You know, twenty three plus years, and 
I started living normally, got normal, 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 and yeah, I have my ups and downs. We all do. I mean, it's just, it's part of life. Mental illness or not, everybody has their ups and downs. So just remember, you're not alone. Contact us here or just dial 911. And until then, um, everybody uh, be well, take care of yourself and each other. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast, its associated website, and any links material are not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast or its associated website. If the listener or any other person has a medical concern, they should consult an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The views expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of Attleboro Access Cable Systems, Arbor Fuller Hospital, or their parents' corporations. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast and its associated website are copyrighted Attleboro Access Cable Systems. The podcast may be redistributed in accordance with Creative Commons License 4.0.